Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. Congregation can be seated for a moment before we move to the text from the book of Judges. What is amazing is those Methodists uh, were stirring up things. They were called enthusiasts at times because of the emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll be unpacking on Wednesday night. Um, I'll be leading the Sermons of Wesley series. We're going to be looking at one of my favorite sermons of Wesley called The Catholic Spirit one that is often not fully interpreted. And so if love to have you join us. We'll be upstairs, 6 o'clock, E200-201. We'll have a copy of the sermon. We'll also listen to it so you can read it and listen to it along the way. And then we discuss what it means for our lives today. Oftentimes when we approach a text, we, we forget to um, get the context of the text. And so geography, I think, is really important to understand this text and understanding who these references are to. So I pulled this map. This is not exactly of the time in which this text takes place in Judges, but it gives you a, a, a geographic reference. Notice the red dot. Uh, it says above the word Midian. In Genesis chapter 25, Abraham and his concubine Keturah have a son named Midian. Midian has five sons, and they eventually leave and they go to the east. And so anytime in the book of Judges you see from the east, it's primarily the Midianites. In fact, if you remember what happened when, when uh, Moses killed the Egyptian officer and hid his body in the mud, when they discovered the body, do you remember where Moses fled to? Come on, good biblical methods. He fled to, your clue's up there, to Midian, right? Because Jethro, the text tells us, is a Midianite. And so this has long been a part of the biblical history. Another fascinating reference that you're going to hear at the beginning is you've heard the word Gaza a lot in the, in, in, um, in the uh, media today. The area of Gaza is an area that was distinguished even in these biblical times. And it's the same geographic area. The difference is this. The word Palestinian actually was not created until the Romans identified the area in 60 AD as Philistia. And it is a transliteration of Philistia that becomes Palestine. But what we know from the biblical text when we talk about the issue of whose land is it, which is a dynamic conversation we can have outside, but notice that Gaza is going to be mentioned, and it's actually where the tribes of Israel were some 400 and 500 years before the birth of Christ. So the Israelites had inhabited this land from the 12 tribes of Israel 
far, far long before our modern sensibilities uh, in the 1947 declarations. So that's just a little bit of historical information. We talked about the Midianites, and if you, are you familiar with Petra? So here's your nerd out moment, okay? So if, if you do some research on Petra, and I've been to Petra, it's absolutely amazing. Um, there is a group of people there that is believed to be um, the Nebataeans, and there's a belief that the Nebataeans and the Midianites were all the same group of people, and, but these were the Arabs. And, and what they would do is during, because they were nomadic, and they would move around, they didn't have crops developed, they would go to the north and west up into the Jezreel Valley. So where's the Jezreel Valley? Do you see the sea in Canaan? That's basically an area known as the Jezreel Valley. And it was a very fertile valley because it would pick up a lot of moisture as it, the, the clouds came over and the fronts came over the Mount Carmel and raised it would create a humidity effect and this sort of valley would capture all the water. It's the same valley by where Elijah fought the, killed the prophets of Baal. So that's Mount Carmel range. These are the reference points to help you understand. So what are we talking about? We're talking about Moses who was over there in Egypt who went all the way to Midian. So he would have crossed all across the desert over to Midian. These are the Midianites. And the Midianites were known for going, and basically they treated all the crops and the hard work of the Israelites and the tribes as Costco and Sam's Wholesale with no checkout area. They would raid and take what they wanted and what they needed. So what you're going to encounter in a moment in this text is you're going to hear about Gideon who is threshing wheat in a wine press. So what is this? Wine presses in the time of Jesus were not large they were smaller areas, and they tended to be not propped up, but they tended to be actually dug down into the ground because they didn't have refrigeration. And so by digging into the ground in the same way that some of the pioneers and settlers in the United States would use a natural cooling box, have you heard of those? They dig into the ground, it would keep things lower. And so he's out of line of sight. He's, he's afraid that these Midianite raiders are coming again. He's threshing wheat. He sees himself as weak. He's the tribe of Manasseh, one of the 12 tribes. He's very weak. He doesn't see himself as a warrior. And I want you to listen for the contrast that happens between what the angel and the Lord say to Gideon and what he sees of himself. What he sees of himself. Last week's text with Jesus and the disciples at Philippi was understanding that a life of surrender is not a sense of just resigning yourself to a sort of a resolve, okay, God, you can take it, but it's a willful act of intentionality to surrender your life, to know that to find your life, you lose it. You take up the cross. This is an active work. So there's two important decisions you make in life. One is to turn to Christ, and the second is to continue to grow in Christ. So we looked at the willful act of surrender today. We say, what are we surrendering ourselves to? So in the same way, when we talk with the children and the students upstairs and the created by God, that this is not a valueless vacuum, that what they hear at school and in social media, the church has a value system that it believes about what's said about, about uh, sexuality, about gender, about all aspects of life with their sexuality. There's a value system. So what we believe is that the scripture gives us a value system about what we surrender our lives to. 
You're surrendering your life every day to something. But in your faith, in your spirituality, you get to make a choice. And so we're going to listen to this text. And then the last thing from a uh, sort of a biblical, purely narrative text, the book of Judges is absolutely fascinating because time again, there will be an angel who shows up. And you see this in Scripture, obviously. We can go all the way back to Jacob, who by the Jacob River was wrestling with an angel of God that became who God was. It's called theophany. You look at Elisha, he fleed. Elijah flees after killing the prophets of Baal, and Jezebel's on his track, and he goes to a cave, and an angel of the Lord was there that becomes the Lord himself in conversation. Watch for that same transition in this text, that it starts with an angel of the Lord... And then God himself is in this conversation. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a living text. It speaks words to us today. And so out of respect to God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able. Today's today coming from Gideon, uh, uh, about Gideon from Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak, Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Uh, but sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Uh, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and, I, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And Gideon replied, if I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking, really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And let's all read what God said in reply. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. This is the Word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may see it, and as you are, we'll use the Wesley Covenant Prayer again as we do through this series. So I invite you to pray with me together as we join in the Wesley Covenant Prayer. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. 
If last week was about understanding the importance of surrender, this week is about what is the value lens of your life going to be? Who are you going to listen to? Next week, we're going to take one of Wesley's words called advice to a people called Methodist. I'm actually going to have copies for you available, and it's going to be the basis for that sermon about what is the advice about how do we live this out, and it's a very practical steps of living your faith in a world of conflict. But today, today we want to look at this passage and say, what can you and I learn about our faith in following Christ from God's encounter with Gideon? I'm going to get right to it immediately and use the imagery of David Brooks, who had a talk titled, Should You Live for Your Resume or Your Eulogy? Like that? Should You Live for Your Resume or Your Eulogy? He says, resume virtues are about what you do, skills you bring to the marketplace. Eulogy virtues are who you are, the nature of your relationships and your character. And your eulogy virtues are more important than your resume virtues. I love that imagery. Very simple. Are you living by eulogy virtues? Or as Stephen Covey said in his book published many years ago, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People begin with the end in mind. And then I also delved a little deeper to ask, well, whenever I go to the Hebrew text, to a Jewish text, I find that sometimes we forget as Christians to ask, what were the rabbinical teachers teaching about the Old Testament text? How is this understood? And in that journey, I came across learning about Joseph Slovic, Slovacic, Joseph Slovacic, who is one of the most influential rabbis. I did not know this. I learned it this week. He's one of the most influential rabbis in the 21st century of Jewish thought. Um, if you know anything in Boston, Massachusetts, of what's known as the Mamadis uh, Institute, it's a Jewish school. He helped found that with his wife. Uh, he lived from 1903 to 1993. And in 1965, he published a book entitled A Lonely Man of Faith that was sort of a life's work of learning about how does your faith help you stand when everything else is against you and you're alone. And I love the imagery that he gives us because I think that what we see lived out in Gideon is an incredibly patient God and really a Gideon who reflects you and me. I have to lie, I love our, our graphics and what Sarah Larson has done for us, but she picked up the imagery. I don't know if this is sort of a reversion of Pepto-Bismol or some antacid, right? But I get that sense it's a medical thing. Of this. But there's a spiritual component of our lives to ask, what do we need to do to detox, to find out what messages we have let our bodies absorb from the world spiritually and have a sense of cleansing, if we look at this text at Gideon, Gideon is evaluating his life based on his physical strength. What is he doing? Number one, he's hiding because he feels weak. He doesn't feel his clan is strong, and he's the weakest in his clan. He's questioning where God is based on the history of what's been said and the circumstances that are happening right now. Gideon's no different than you and me because often we say, God, if you're really there, why is this happening? And so we can unpack that in many ways, but I want us to take the next step to realize we'll never be able to answer the whys. But you know what we can't answer? A God of patience, a God of grace, a God who will say to Gideon not just once, but over and over again and to the people constantly, all right, 
Do what you need to do, and I will wait for you to return. You see, the wedding of God returning gets picked up in Luke 15 as Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal father. God's always about waiting for us to return to him. The question is, where are we in the process of return? And so Joseph Soloyevich recommends this imagery that I want to use as a lens from a Hebrew understanding, not specifically about Gideon, but how we base our values and where do we establish the core of our values in the world and what we believe. And the reason this is important is there was a once a book published that said, what's the least you have to do to be a Christian? As if following Christ is looking for like the 10 items in less line at H-E-B. We're not looking for the minimalist aspect of faithfulness, friends. We're looking to the gospel to ask for the maximum surrender of our life. And if you're beginning to say, well, do I really have to do that? You know the answer. If you're wondering if you ought to do it or not, or not do it, you probably shouldn't do it if you doubt it. And if you feel it on your heart, you probably should. But what keeps us from acting on the lure, as we call the Holy Spirit, the, the, the nudge of the Holy Spirit, the invitation of the Holy Spirit, what keeps us from that? Here's what Slavojevich says. He says there's two atoms in every one of us. Adam one is the worldly, ambitious part of us that wants to build and create. Adam two is the humble side of our nature. Adam two wants to do good and be good and honor God. Adam one, Adam one wants to conquer the world, save your accomplishments, and ask how things work. And the motto of Adam one is success. Adam, too, wants to follow a calling, Savior's inner consistency, and ask why I'm here, and the motto is love. Now, any of you who have studied Pauline literature, any of the works of Paul, should automatically be coming to mind the way in which Paul uses the imagery of Jesus as being the second Adam. For through one man, sin entered the world in Adam, i.e. Adam and Eve, but through a second one, all the sin is absolved, and the way of forgiveness is provided in Jesus. And so when we think about how we establish our values, this is so important because Slavojevich goes on to say that Adam 1 is built on your strengths, but Adam 2 is built by fighting your weaknesses. How often do you assume what God can do through your life and what you can accomplish is only what you're good at? You ever do that? Think of David for a moment. Just let the text tell you the story. David gets anointed king by Samuel. He's the youngest of all of the brothers and sisters. I have two older sisters. I was the youngest. Guess who took out the trash at our house, right? I always got the odd job. Now, they call me spoiled. I don't agree with that. Because when they left, I had to do everything. But if you're in a family with brothers and sisters and you're the youngest, you feel kind of left out or whatnot, David gets anointed king. Everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. They send David back to keeping sheep. I don't know about you, but if I get anointed the next king of Israel and there's oil dripping all around, there's going to be a little bit of a Jason Kelsey moment for everybody. I want to have somebody swinging a beer and then ripping off a shirt going, yeah, that's my brother, right? Which, by the way, Roper, your friend said you'd be my Jason Kelsey today, and I just don't see it, brother. I just don't see it. So, Vic, how about you? Going to be my Jason? Going to be my... No, okay. Nobody's stepping up to be my Jason Kelsey. Okay. 
But David goes back for a season of keeping the sheep and then goes forward. And when he goes forward, he takes lunch to his brothers to face Goliath. He goes to take lunch. And when he gets there, when you read the text, do you know what the brothers say when they look at the younger brother who's anointed the next king of Israel? What are you doing here? And who is it that faces Goliath? Who is it that makes the mighty one fall? It's David. He goes, he kneels in the stream. Even, even King Saul says, look, if you're going to face a giant, brother, you've got to go like me. You've got to be kind of an Adam one. You know, I've got to get my armor. You've got to get my... And David tries to put on Saul's armor, and the text says that literally David took them off and said, I can't go in these. I am not familiar with them. You see, friends, whenever we try to fight battles in this world in somebody else's armor, or we take the value systems of the world, you're always going to be disappointed. It's always going to fall short. Because you're in that Slavojevich's Adam 1 mode, you're looking at cost, you're looking at success. And that's not what it means as a follower of Christ. For as a follower of Christ, it means a full and absolute surrender. This is the way the Slavojevich says, you go into yourself and you identify your signature sin out of which all other sins emerge, and you fight that sin and you wrestle with that sin, and out of that wrestling, that suffering, then a death of character is constructed. And we're not taught how to recognize sin in ourselves and that we're not taught in this culture how to wrestle with it. This is the 1965. We're not taught how to confront it and we're com- or how to combat it. We live in a culture with an Adam-1 mentality where we're inarticulate about Adam-2. See, when we talk about a sense of what it means to surrender your life, it is a willful Involuntary surrender of the authority in your life. And what the church proclaims to the good news of the gospel is that Jesus meant what he said last week to those disciples by Caesarea Philippi and you to me. Whoever wants to try and gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what does it profit somebody? to try and gain the whole world, but lose your soul. I've never done a funeral in 38 years of ministry or worked with someone in the final stages of their life facing death where they've ever said to me, you know, Pastor Bert, I just wish I'd spent more time at work. You know, I just wish I could have done more business deals. Do you know what the number one thing I hear from people in those times when they're facing their own mortality at the end, and if we begin with the end in mind is, the regrets are that they didn't spend more time with family. They didn't value relationships more. And if that's the question that every person's going to ask at the final, why don't we ask at the beginning, and why don't we let God move and take an inv- a voluntary step of surrendering our lives and let God move and breathe and be in our lives? If it's going to be that way at the end, friends, why not let it be that way right now, today? Nurture your surrender And know that God will wait for you. That's the great good news of the gospel.
Let's pray together. Oh God, we are grateful for the ways that you always pursue us in your love. We're thankful for all the people in the lives that you have used as intermittent voices. We're thankful for the scriptures which have endured years and for the wisdom that comes from seeing your heart as a God who creates us, who in Christ redeems us, who in the Holy Spirit fills us and seeks to redeem us. Oh God, help us to live into that hymn to surrender all to you. All to Jesus we surrender and all to him freely give. For this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen.